I was preaching youth camp in Georgia, and also preaching in that camp was Brother James Townley. And I had known of Brother Townley, but never met Brother Townley to know personally. And as that week went on, and he preached and ministered, I realized that uh, he hadn't just learned how to preach. Uh, you, you can, he's very studious, um, and, and when, he, when he comes to the pulpit, he's well prepared. But the best messages are not prepared, they're born. And you could tell from his ministry that there were things that through engagement of the Spirit and through spiritual formation, there were things that had been birthed in his soul and in his spirit. Principles and commitments, consecrations. Brother Townley is the kind of preacher that uh, outbalances uh, other ministries and preachers that may be a problem and may have left a black mark uh, on, <clears throat> on the apostolic movement. Brother Townley's character and Brother Townley's ministry and the, the pureness of his heart and, and spirit, you, you will see it. It will come through. It, uh, he, he, uh, he really enhances in his type of ministry. It helps us all. It helps all of the apostolic movement. And we are very, very thankful to have such a man as Brother Townley ministering in this pulpit. Praise God. And this, all of this talk probably makes him uncomfortable, but uh, it is the truth. He, he is a preacher. He's my friend, and I'm glad he's my friend. I, I need friends like him. He's the kind of man that, that, that keeps us straight and, and, and keeps us on the right track. And uh, we're so glad he's here. We're glad that his family's here with us from Jennings, Louisiana. And they are, they've got property. They're about to build a building. Uh, I've been in his church, been with his family, and they are what they appear to be. They don't put something on to look good and, and then take it off later. They are what they appear to be. Great apostolic people. Praise the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to have his way while we turn this to Brother Tim. everybody are you glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning the Lord is good his mercy is everlasting and his truth endureth to all generations aren't you glad you are a part of continuing truth The New Testament writers challenged us that we should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. It was once delivered and forever continuing. I'm glad tonight that in 2013 we are experiencing and enjoying the word of truth and the spirit of truth. Aren't you glad for what God has already done in your life in this meeting? Why don't you just lift your hands and thank the Lord with me for what he has already done in your heart, your mind, and your spirit. Hallelujah. Lord, we praise you. We praise you. We praise you. We praise you. We give you glory. We give you honor. Hallelujah. 
God bless you. You may be seated. I'll have you stand in just a moment. Let me say that it is truly a joy and pleasure to be here. I count it a great, great high honor today to be asked to stand in this pulpit and preach the Word of God. I, um, I love Brother Nathan and Sister Christy Morton. Amen. I esteem you highly. When I met Brother Morton at that meeting in Georgia that he referenced, I, uh, I knew that the Lord had put us together. And uh, what a blessing it has been. Uh, and uh, our relationship has just grown. And uh, I, my spirit has been blessed uh, by the relationship that we share. And um, so I want you to know I love you this morning. I appreciate you very much. And uh, Elder Morton, thank you for honoring me with the privilege to be. I'd just be glad to be here. And uh, you honored me. Uh, to uh, ask me to preach, although I understand that uh, that you you did only ask me because I was with Brother Weeks. Uh, <laughs> he called Brother Weeks to ask him to preach West Coast Conference, and Brother Weeks was with me. And so Brother Morton said he just felt bad and went ahead and called me and uh, asked me. So thank you, Brother Weeks. I appreciate that uh, very much. Uh, but I love you and honor you and respect you highly. Thank you for allowing me to just get a little closer to you this week and know you better. I appreciate you very much. It's a joy to have my uh, wife and my two oldest children here. Um, my wife is more than my better half, I'll tell you that. Um, she, is, she is more than 90%, I'm telling you. She is a wonderful, wonderful lady, and uh, she is certainly a blessing to my life and to our local church family. Um, I want to say that I love my two oldest children that are here, Megan and Madison. What good children they have been. And uh, I appreciate their love for God and love for the truth. I had Madison just get up in our last youth service and I said, I'd like for you to have something to say. Um, just get up and say something. Um, pray and ask the Lord what you, um, what he would like for you to say. And so he, he got up and read a scripture. And uh, he just simply said, I thank God for a revelation of the oneness of God. Amen. Aren't you glad for the understanding that Jesus is the mighty God in Christ? Amen. I'd like for you to stand with me and we'll get ready to go into the word of the Lord. Uh, I appreciate all the preaching that has gone on already. I have been so, so blessed. And I know that uh, what you're about to hear... Uh, following me today from Brother Joel Booker will be a tremendous blessing. And then tonight I'm looking forward to hearing Brother Jonathan Dudley. 20 or 30 years ago, um, back when Brother Weeks and I would have been called by Brother Johnny Hare, the boys of God, we weren't even minor prophets. We were the boys of God. And uh, back in that season and time of our life, um, PSR was going on, and uh, we would we would get all the tapes we could, and we'd listen to every message we could. And through PSR, there was a relationship that was formed uh, with a lot of men uh, in our area with these you West Coast brethren, uh, our pastors and our friends uh, that pastored in the region, um, came out here and and enjoyed PSR and preached a part of PSR and um, the cassettes would make their way back to us 
um, and we would listen to them. And, and I, I, loved, I loved every chance I could get to get a hold of one of those uh, cassettes because it seemed that uh, uh, that meeting represented for me uh, a, a balance, that, that striking the fine, delicate balance of um, what it would be strengthening the stakes and lengthening the cords. Uh, it had a, had a feel of strength and had a feel of evangelism. And uh, it was a challenge for me to fulfill my purpose in reaching the lost. And it was a blessing. And many of you men who preached that meeting was a part of it, our elders among us today. And um, I want you to know I appreciate the blessing that you have been uh, to younger preachers of the Gulf Coast. And now today, um, there is a new generation of preachers that are accepting the responsibility of pastoring and there's, there's a new group of leaders that God's putting in the churches there in the Gulf Coast. And uh, I want you to know I appreciate every one of you West Coast brethren who are willing to take our phone calls and answer some questions for us that we have and share with us the wisdom that God has imparted to you. Thank you for being friends to us younger men in the Gulf Coast. And what I want to say today is that we need you elders. Thank you for being our friends. And I want you to know by God's grace, we will serve your sons and we will serve your grandsons and the church will go on. I'd like for you to open your Bibles to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 20. I would like for us to read five verses of Scripture, this book, and also I would like to read two verses of Scripture from the book of Psalms. I do have my knife with me. And I I have my, uh, I have my, Texas toothpick that I carry with me everywhere I go uh, when I travel. So I'm, I'm double barrel today. And um, I, uh, I want to give to you what the Lord has given to me. How many is ready to receive the word of the Lord? Numbers chapter 20, verse 8, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Take the rod and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beast to drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, And he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beast also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. 
When Moses heard those words, it affected him deeply. For he had received the vision of leading God's people into the promised land. And now, for having disobeyed the Lord and smiting the rock rather than speaking to the rock, the Lord said, you're not going to be able to go into the promised land with the children of Israel. In Numbers chapter 27 and verse 14, this is the Lord told, the Lord told uh, Moses, he said, you rebelled against my commandment. When you read throughout the book of Deuteronomy, you'll find he mentions this experience and, and this decision the Lord made four times. It affected him deeply. In Deuteronomy 1 and 37, he said, the Lord was angry with me. Deuteronomy chapter 3, he said, I besought the Lord, wanting to be able to go into the promised land. Let me go over. But he said, the Lord was wroth with me. Deuteronomy 4 and 21, he said, the Lord was angry with me. In Deuteronomy 32, the Lord said, ye trespassed against me. And so these are words that Moses wrote concerning God's decision. Now, let's read Psalm 106 and verse 32. And see what the psalmist had to say. Looking back at what happened. Psalm 106, 32. They angered him. Speaking of Moses. They caused him to crack. And to burst out into a rage, they angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses for their sakes. Things went bad. God judged. Because they provoked his spirit, so that he spake unadvisedly with his lips. In the original, it just simply means to vociferate angrily, which means to utter in a loud voice angry words. Is it possible that through my anger, God could get angry at me? Is it really possible that people rebelling against God can so provoke leaders' spirits that he or she rebels against God. As a matter of fact, when Moses called them rebels, he was rebelling against God. One writer put it like this, the conduct of bad men has a strong tendency to disturb the moral temper of the good. God holds the best men responsible for the loss of their moral temper. I know you're standing, but let me just finish just for a little bit right here. Moses' sin was the sin of one occupying a high official position. In the past, a sentinel who sleeps on the post is shot because great matters are weighed in the balance. Great interests are at stake. Why did the ancients have a plan in which they would take a builder if his building crumbled and fell? 
They would take away the ruins and they would bury him there and let the next builder put the building upon him. They held him accountable. Persons that are in positions of authority and of office are held severely to account. Just the same way a policeman is whose duty is not just to enhance or to keep the law, enforce the law. He is to obey the law. And if he violates the law, he is held to the sharpest account. Moses was the lawgiver. And there was an appropriateness in the fact that the great lawgiver should himself be held to the sharpest and closest account when he himself violated the word of God. And so this is the word of the Lord today. Moses, you must always be meek. Moses, you must always be be meek. This is a message about leadership today. If you have any authority in your life and that you are a leader, a parent, Sunday school teacher, choir leader, youth leader, lay minister, this is not just the message to preachers today. I believe there's a principle the Lord would like to talk to all of us about. Moses, you must always be meek. Let's pray together right now in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Lord bless you. You may be seated. A couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, I would, uh, after my evening services, go home to enjoy a good bowl of cereal. And my favorite cereal was some type of honey oat cornflakes. And uh, I would always like to add at least a small box of raisins. Two or three boxes of raisins is what I would prefer, but I'd add some raisins to it, and and then I would, um, I would, if I had some strawberries, I'd cut some strawberries up, or if I had some bananas, I'd cut some bananas up. Did everybody have breakfast this morning? Uh, I would I would cut some fruit up, and then then after that, I would take some honey, and I, I would just, I'd put a little bit of honey on that, what I had made, and. One, one night as I prepared my late night snack, I was really craving honey. And uh, rather than just putting a little honey, as I normally did, upon the, the cereal in order to enhance the flavor, I, uh, man, I just, I squeezed that honey bear. I'm telling you, all over that bowl of cornflakes. And 
And so I sat down, and as I delved into that, that uh, bowl of cereal, I, I became very, very disappointed. The more I ate, the less I enjoyed it. And I, I found out that, as with many other things, it, it, it's so with honey, that, that with, with many other things, honey is best when used in moderation. Honey's good, and, and honey is good for you, but, but really too much honey is harmful. A limited dose of honey provides antioxidants, and, and these antioxidants protect cells in the body from structural damage that toxins cause. And, and honey is a cough suppressant, and honey is a powerful antiseptic and antibacterial agent. But too much honey, too much honey causes nausea. Stomach cramps, bloating, too much honey erodes enamel and the linings of the esophagus and the intestines. You know, I think we need to just always remember what the word of the Lord has to say about any subject. Because the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 27, it is not good to eat much honey. Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 16 says, Hast thou found honey? Eat so much as is sufficient for thee, lest thou be filled therewith and vomit it. The next verse of Scripture says this, Withdraw thy foot from thy neighbor's house, lest he be weary of thee, and so hate thee. Is it really true that we can get too much of a good thing? It's like this. At at what point does a worthwhile compliment become flattery? At at what point? where, Where is the line that kind words lose their good taste? They become too sticky, too tacky, too much honey. Several years ago, as I was praying and talking to the Lord and he was working in my heart and working in my life and, uh, I I was going through a season of personal growth and desiring to gain balance and understand biblical leadership principles. And, and, uh, ultimately what I wanted to become was more like Jesus. As I, as I sought the Lord and and gave myself to him, allowing him to just work fully and freely in my life, I began to realize that that every virtue must have a balancing virtue to remain a virtue. And, and, you know, if you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 1, you'll find a list of paradoxical truths. Ecclesiastes 3 and 1, the Bible says, To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. And the list goes on. And so, um, what matters is that we've got to know how to do the right thing at the right time. 
And, and Proverbs chapter 26 and verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou be like unto him. Proverbs 26 and 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. And so, someone could read those two passages of scriptures back to back and say, what should I do? Should I answer or should I not answer? And can I tell you this? The answer is that sometimes you should answer and sometimes you should not answer. It sounds to me like that there are some fools that are worth the response. And there are some fools that are not. The answer lies in discerning what kind of fool you're dealing with. And so wisdom, wisdom is learning when to speak up and when to shut up. Think about this. Should we pray about everything? Well, some folks would just say, yeah, we should pray about everything. And, and, and can I tell you, yeah, in a way we should, but... In a way, we shouldn't. When are we to pray about something? Or when are we to pray about the will of God? And when are we to not pray about the will of God? Can I tell you when the will of God is written in Scripture and it is very apparent what we should do, we don't have to pray about the will of God. We just do what the Word has spoken. When your pastor has made it very clear, the will of God, the mind of God, the desire of God, the command of the Lord, you don't have to pray, well, God, should I do this? Should I follow this? No. If he's made it clear, then you don't have to pray about it. Just do it. Just do it. Hallelujah. Or if he says, don't do it. Don't do it. It's kind of like this. The Bible said that the Lord has exalted his word above his what? Name. I, I thought of it like this, that, that if it's written, it's settled. The word of God is established. It changes not. The will of God is not duplicitous. Amen. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. And the word of God is consistent. And so... Some people try to speak the name of Jesus in a blessing over that which the word of God has cursed. Um, amen. And you can speak the name of Jesus all you want to over something God has cursed. But brother, it's cursed. And sister, it's cursed. The word of God is exalted above the name. You can try to do anything you want in the name of the Lord. But if it's contrary to the word, the word is above the name. Think about love. We're commanded to love. Should we love everything? The answer is no. The Bible says love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. We're to love God. We're to love others. We're to love ourselves. But what is the balancing virtue of love? If we just go through life loving, loving, it becomes sloppy agape. 
We, we can't just love everything. The Word of God teaches us not to love everything. So what's the balancing virtue of love? It's hate. Some of us think that hate is just a vice. Can I tell you, there is a righteous hate. Amen. As much as we're to love God and love others and, and love ourselves, we're supposed to hate sin, hate Satan, and hate the world. So what I'm telling you, we've got to have this balance in our lives. We, we've got to learn what to love and we've got to learn what to hate. Amen. It's not just all about love. There's people, they just want to focus on the love. But I'm going to tell you, there are some things today that are still an abomination to God and he hates it. And I know the defining attribute of the people of God, of the children of God, is love. He said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. It's the love flow. Uh, amen. That is the defining attribute uh, of the disciples of Christ. Uh, but I want to tell you, if you know Jesus uh, and Christ lives in you, uh, there are some things that your Holy Ghost is going to have a resistance to. And you'll recognize the damning effect of that kind of sin and lifestyle and it'll cause you to hate it amen where you'll stand up and be bold and courageous amen and 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 be a servant of the lord in preserving your family in the way of righteousness and holiness hallelujah 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 praise god as a matter of fact whether the anointing of God is waxing stronger in our life, whether the anointing is increasing in our life, or whether the anointing is waning, lessening in our lives, is determined by what we love and what we hate. And I've got Bible for it. I'm going to tell you, amen, the anointing of God increasing on our life, amen, is a result of us getting our loves right, but not just our loves right, but our hates right. And at any moment, amen, that we start getting our loves wrong and our heart starts to drift, we're going to feel that anointing start lifting off of our life. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 9 lets us know the word of the Lord that says, because... Thou hast loved righteousness. Because thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Hallelujah. Amen. The anointing was a result of having the love for righteousness uh, and the hate for iniquity. Amen. It's got to be more than just one virtue. We've got to have the balancing virtue in our life. Think about this. I call it the balance of looking good. Some folks are so caught up on looking good that they're not focused on being good. Can I tell you, it's more important about being good than it is looking good. 
And when I say looking good, I'm not just talking about whether we're dressing holy or unholy. I'm just talking about some people just give too much attention to their dress. And it's more important how their hair is fixed and what clothes they are wearing, rather than making sure their heart, their mind, their spirit's ready when they get to the house of God. So I call it the balance of looking good. It's being good. Think about the balance of a church-centered life. The balance of a church-centered life. Most of you understand the principle that we are to build our lives around the word, of, uh, the, the house of God, the worship of God, what's going on in the work of God. We should, we should center our life around the church. Uh, amen. But can I tell you, uh, I believe that there's a balancing virtue that we must have if we're going to be the people that God wants us to be. And if, if, if we're going to have the balance of a church-centered life, uh, we got to realize that we must be a Christian in everyday living. Because what you do in everyday living is just as important as coming to church. They feed one another. Can I tell you it's important you come to the house of the Lord and you pray. It's important that you are faithful to the house of the Lord. And you're there singing the songs of Zion and worshiping and hearing the man of God when he preaches. Amen. But it's just as important that you get in your home and you build an altar. And you pray with your children. And you pray with your wife. And you pray with your husband. And you read the word of God church will not be what it should be if you're not being what you should be away from the church prayer is just as important in everyday living as it is the house of God hallelujah 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 should, should, should we live the crucified life or should we be living the resurrected life I say we should be living both. The Bible said they that are Christ have crucified themselves with the affections and lust. We've got to continually keep our lives on the altar. The apostle Paul said, I die daily. But I want to tell you, God has a bigger plan for our life than just a life where our, our emotions and our feelings are, are dead. God has a greater plan for our life than just asceticism and, and denying ourselves. I want to tell you, the Holy Ghost wants to fill us. The glory of the Lord wants to thrill us. God wants us to live a life of righteousness and holiness and power and glory and might and anointing. I need to learn how to do battle with my flesh and deny myself but I also need glorious resurrection power. I don't want to just be focused on telling myself no and denying my flesh. God's got a bigger plan than just me saying no to my flesh and dying out. He wants to lay his hand upon me. He wants to raise me up. He wants to use me for his glory. He wants my mouth to be filled with his word and my heart with his praise. Hallelujah. How many wants the glory of the Lord? Amen. If you're going to pray a prayer of crucifixion, pray a prayer saying, God, raise me up. I'm going to die. But if I'll die, I don't have any doubt there's going to be a resurrection. You're going to raise up righteousness, holiness, and godliness. God 
God's got a bigger plan for my life than just fighting my flesh. He wants to use me in this world to reach a lost generation. And it takes resurrection power. You need to tell the Lord, God, get me up. Get me up. Get me on my feet. Give me my joy back. Give me my dance back. Give me my song back. Connect me with a lost soul you want to reach. Holy Ghost, lead me today. What do you want to live today? The crucified or resurrected life? I want it both. I want my flesh dead. As a matter of fact, you're not going to be able to overcome what you need to overcome. If the Holy Ghost don't touch you, the Bible said mortify through the Spirit the deeds of the body. It's not over. You don't have power. You can't get over it till the Holy Ghost touches you and raises up righteousness. He's got to impute His righteousness in your life. Hallelujah. Is it possible? Is it possible to care too much? We got to care. We got to have compassion. We got to be concerned about people. But is it possible as a parent to care too much? Is it possible as a leader that's concerned for souls to care too much? Yeah. We can get so concerned about people's troubles that we begin to worry ourselves sick. We can't allow their destructive behavior to cause such emotional trauma in our lives. That we send ourselves to an early grave. Somehow God's got to help us to learn the balance to care. But not too much. Let it stay a virtue in my life. Let all virtues find their balancing virtue in my life, Lord. Think about ambition. Ambition. Is ambition a a virtue or a vice? It's both. Our hopes and our dreams fuel our ministry. Ambitions are like a spark plug in the engine. They keep you going, but they can go bad. Think about parents that want their children to do well. Some of them are, 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 are so fixated upon their imagination of what they want their children to be, that they're driving their kids crazy in overperformance. Sometimes, sometimes our ambition engine needs to be tuned up. We need a realignment with Christ and away from self-centered desires. There's no check engine light on our ministry. On our dashboard. But I want to tell you, if we'll keep ourselves in the Word of God, 
The scripture offers wisdom in recognizing when our ambitions start misfiring. I believe in the power of the Holy Ghost to be able to reveal the inner man. The word of God is a mirror we see ourselves. And so ambition inspires us to take risks, try new approaches, venture into new lands. But any fuel that can accomplish so much carries inherent dangers as well. Ambition like an uncontained fire can also be a source of great destruction. It can drive those desiring to achieve to cause great harm on their families. That's not just ministry. That's your job. That's your career. It can cause people to bring great trouble to their congregations and to the leader, the ambitious one himself. I was, I was reading uh, uh, some time back, uh, several years ago, a book, and, and in it, it, there was a chapter where a, a, a minister was, was spoken of who had great lofty goals and great ambitions. And this is what they said about him. Ultimately, he saw everything as an obstacle to overcome by faith. And they said he never submitted his dreams to godly counsel. He just saw every obstacle. And sometimes, folks, it's not an obstacle, it's a warning sign. Sometimes it's a preacher saying, hey, you need to chill a little bit. You better give yourself to God. You better not get so caught up in your job. God, I want ambition, but keep it a virtue and never let it be a vice in my life. I got to hurry today. I got to hurry, but I got a little bit more to go. I'm just being honest with you. Think about contentment. Think about contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We should be a contented people. In every way? No. We need to be discontented also. We need to be contented in that we know the truth. We've experienced the truth. We're enjoying the truth. We know it's the truth. We're here. We're settled. We're set. We're established. We're planted in the doctrine. But I want to tell you, I'm not happy about what I know in that I want to know more. I'm not satisfied with what I've experienced. I thank God for where he's brought me, but I'm not anywhere near where God wants to bring me. So while I must be content in some ways, I've got to learn to be discontented in other ways in that I never lose my desire for more. I got to read the word of God knowing there's something I've never understood. Knowing that God can teach me something today. Show me something today. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go to the house of the Lord with meekness and receive with meekness the engrafted word. God's got something else he can show me. Something else he can teach me. That's why we don't stop praying. We don't stop worshiping. We don't stop coming to the house of the Lord. Because there's always more, 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 more. And if there's more, I want it. (laughs) 
conformity. Is conformity a bad word? Be not conformed to this world. Be not conformed to this world. We should not be conforming to this world. But if we are according to the book of Romans, being conformed into the image of Christ, that's a good thing. So conformity is a virtue or a vice. It's what you're conforming to that determines whether it's a virtue or a vice in your life. Now let's think about authority. At what point does a leader become authoritarian? At what point does the gift of authority become a curse to those that are subject to it? When is authority, or when authority is a virtue, it's an umbrella where those beneath it find peace and security and develop maturity, find their purpose and place in life and do it. But when authority is a vice, people are fearful, insecure, and immature. At what point does becoming all things to all men cease to be a virtue? And become a vice. Or at what point does the virtue cross the line and become a vice? As I prepared this message, I thought about Albert Einstein. Boy, I was going deep, huh? Whew. I thought about Albert Einstein. I just thought about him, no. And I thought about, I thought about the book Paul Johnson wrote, History of Modern Times, 1920s to the 1990s. To him, the foundation for the history of modern times began when Einstein's theory of relativity was established. It was proven that the world, the universe, didn't move in a predictable and consistent manner in the sense that, that it wasn't in... in was it perfectly? There was, there was a little bit of inconsistency. And so with that theory of relativity that he wrote in the early part of the 1900s, when at 1919 it was established. And you know how that, that scientific principle has turned into a social philosophy of our times. And that is our world today believes that there is no absolutes believes that there is nothing that is consistent and nothing that's settled and nothing that's sure and nothing that's predictable. There's no rights and no wrongs. Believe what you want to. Even if it contradicts with what I believe, just everybody's all right and okay. It's, it's affected our world in the postmodern times uh, in a social uh, way. But, but, but Einstein, who was the basis of the history of modern times, is also at the root of the greatest fears of our postmodern society. And that is one of the greatest concerns in our day. The governments and the world leaders is that these nuclear powers 
these bombs, these weapons are going to get in the hands of people who are rogue and, and people who have no good will and intentions with anything that they have or possess. They, they want to get a hold of weapons to use them to create terrorism and create havoc in our world. Amen. What I'm trying to tell you is that, that, uh, uh, Albert Einstein was known as the, the father of the atom bomb. Even though he never worked on the project, he was the man that wrote a letter to Franklin Roosevelt and said, Mr. President, I believe that we are very, very close to being able to produce an atomic bomb. And I want to encourage you to get this. I want to encourage you to create some type of committee that could... Uh, Give attention to go ahead and pushing through the development of this atomic bomb. Einstein saw what Hitler was doing. And he knew that Hitler could only be stopped by power. He understood that, that, uh, that, that they were close to developing the atomic bomb. And, and he said, we, we, we were close. And so President Roosevelt wrote him a letter back and said, all right, I've read your letter and uh, I have formed a committee and you know it's all history now. Through that committee, they developed the A-bomb, they dropped it on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the war was ended. But Albert Einstein also saw the dangers of what he was encouraging the president to do. And he lived out the rest of his days talking about the dangers of the weapons that he encouraged to be developed. People that possess power need to realize fully, if possible, as much as possible, the influence that they carry. You know, I uh, was listening to a, a fictional writer on Audible the other day. Most of my study and reading and research is with uh, nonfiction. But I, I like listening to fiction when I'm traveling. And it helps time go by and gives me ideas and thoughts and just ways to word things and say things. And, and uh, I, I heard him, I heard something that he had written and he he talked about how that um, there were boys in inner city crime that were made to feel like men when guns were put in their hands. They weren't ready for it. They didn't have the wisdom of a man to know when they should pull the trigger and when they shouldn't pull the trigger. They were boys made to feel like men with guns in their hands. That's like leaders that don't understand the power of their words. That, that, that's like parents that don't understand name-calling to their children and stereotyping. It's, it's like people that use the power of suggestion without saying the negative thing. But they've still sent the message. The trigger's been pulled. The thought's been sent. God, help us. Help us. Not everybody can handle power. 
Some understand the limitations of authority while others do not. How many business owners in this place are leaders, have people in your organization that you would like to promote into leadership, but you can't because they don't know how to handle power. You'd look at brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, Mr. Joe and Miss Susie. You say, oh, I would love. They have so much more potential, but, but they can't handle authority. Without the guns in their hands, the boys feel their smallness. They feel their littleness. It's kind of like Saul in the scriptures. The Bible said... When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou made head over the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. Not everybody that gets put in the position of power is ready for it. And not everybody that's ready for it can handle it when they get it. I'm saying today we better always be meek. Whether we have power and position or whether we don't, we better always be meek. And I could go way off track, but simply meekness is not a lack of strength. Meekness is the result of great strength. Meekness is power under control. Meekness is the ability... That comes, or, or the virtue that comes from being able to rule your spirit. I've got a, five, a list of five things that, that brings uh, into our lives uh, meekness. And that is, it takes honesty, it takes humility, it takes a love for others, and it takes the ability to rule our spirit. And we must receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost because meekness is a fruit of the spirit. The Apostle Paul said, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves come in among you, not sparing the flock. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you. They're coming. And they're not going to spare the flock. He also said in Philippians that one preached Christ out of contention. Not sincerely. Supposing to add affliction to my bonds. The Apostle Peter said, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. I want to tell you, it's not always being God's leader. I'm not trying to whine, I'm just telling you. It's not always easy. Think about Moses. Moses was on the backside of the desert and received the command of God, said, I want you to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Woo. Me, Pharaoh. Okay. God persuaded him to go. He walks into Pharaoh's court and said, The Lord said, Let my people go. Now, the Lord did not tell Moses what Pharaoh's response was going to be. I'm telling you, it can be challenging to be God's person. You're in between God and obstinate people. God told me to tell you to let his people go. And Pharaoh says, who's the Lord? 
that I should obey him. I'm not going to let the people go. Moses walks out. The Lord brings him back into Pharaoh's court. And he's got, he's got his signs. You remember? Put your hand in your bosom, pull it out. It's lepers. Put it back in, pull it out. Throw your rod down there, snakes. And then Pharaoh's magicians throws down. His, God didn't tell him that they were going to be able to mimic it. I mean, Moses, it's unfolded for him. But the Lord's snake goes over, swallows him up. Boy, that would make me feel better too. And so, here we go. We got these demonstrations. And Pharaoh says, no. I'm not letting the people go. Moses walks out and said, Lord, you didn't tell me that. I thought you gave me those two signs, told me to go. It, it just didn't happen, okay? I'm just trying to. What's, what's, what's Moses going to do now? He's sent out of the court. You know what? God says, Moses, I want you to go back in there. And I want you to tell him that if, if you don't let the people go, you're going to stretch the rod out in the bloods. You're going to fill the waters. What I'm trying to tell you, Moses had no idea there was going to be ten plagues. He didn't know how long it was going to take. He didn't know as it started how it was all going to play out. He was just between God and an obstinate Pharaoh. What was good is that Moses always obeyed God. That through it all, he stayed humble. And he would walk out when it didn't happen to hear the voice of the Lord again, saying, go back and tell him one more thing. Go back and tell him I'm going to do this, and I still want him to let the people go. It, it, it's, it takes a long time for God's will to be done sometimes. It takes a long time for God's will to be done sometimes. Because we're dealing with human flesh. Humanity doesn't change easy. Humanity doesn't let go easy. And so Moses is God's man caught between divine will and human will. And Moses handles it perfectly. As long as it was an outsider. But after 40 years of leadership, of dealing with murmuring and griping and complaining and rebellious insiders, he finds himself at a day where the people are fussing and griping and grumbling and complaining again. And the Lord said, Moses, get your rod. Let me just make a point before that. I'm trying to hurry. Moses falls to the ground when the people start grumbling and complaining about being thirsty and needing something to drink, kind of like I am today. I've never drank so much water in all my life. i got a dry mouth. People were grumbling and griping and complaining. Meek Moses, he just goes to prayer again. Responds like he always does. Lord. And God speaks. He says, get your rod. Go to the rock. And I want you to 
speak to the rock. Moses has always done it just right every time. But today, it got personal. Today, he said, you want me to fetch you water out of the rock? Man, he's always been able to get it out of his spirit. But today, it's sticking a little more than it should. He's really angry. He's really angry. He's really frustrated. He responded right to start, but but he got that rod in his hand. I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, my philosophy is, is that we always ought to have with us the rod of authority, but we shouldn't use it to solve every problem. Don't ever leave home without it, but don't use it every time. Use it if you have to. Because that's what meekness is. It's power under control. I can do what I need to do, but I'm not going to do more than necessary. I'll do whatever it takes, whatever is required, whether it's love or hate, whether it's judgment or mercy. And so, and so, we have Moses. He's got that rod in his hand. He's going to the rock. Must we fetch water out of this rut, you rebels? And, ah, not just one time, I mean twice. And God covered his bacon. The Bible said the water flowed. And it flowed out abundantly. And the people drank. And their animals drank. But God was mad. The water flowed. But Moses, me and you have an issue. Your daughter complied. But what about that anger that's in your spirit? Oh, God, I got a burden today. I got a burden today to help us all in any position that we feel where we have authority, that God can help us to be more careful, that we could be more committed to following the Word of God and the Spirit of the Lord perfectly. I mean, Moses could have just said, water, flow. Water, come forth. Rock, the Lord says, give us something to drink. Moses could have said, river, flow. He could have just spoke to the hardness and their thirst would be quenched. But no, his own emotions, his own anger caused him to strike the rock. Can I tell you, God doesn't do the same thing the same way all the time. Because before God had let him vent his frustration, before the Lord had let him strike the rock, 
Sometimes God will let you do what you want to do in that his command for you will be in accordance to the way you really feel about the situation. But sometimes in the same type circumstance, God will tell you, I don't want you to do it that way. And just because I let you strike the rock last time doesn't mean I'm going to let you strike the rock every time. I'm telling you, we got to know the mind of God in every situation and do it. Because today, God may not want to deal with Johnny like he used you to deal with Johnny last time. God may not want to deal with Susie the way he had you deal with Susie last time. It's going to kind of be like Ananias hearing from the Lord say, go to a street called Straight and pray for a man named Saul. And he says, whoa. I've heard heard of this man. He's caused a lot of trouble and a lot of harm. God says, behold, he prayeth. Paul's not the same Paul today as he was yesterday. I got a hold of his heart. He's waiting on you to show up and lay your hands on him. I'm telling you, hard-headed Johnny may be weeping and crying today. Stiff-necked Susie, amen, may be ready to receive the love that you tried to show them all their life, but they couldn't receive it. But today they're ready. we got to stay open to the leading of the Holy Ghost. Do you really believe that God can just put a word in your mouth? And he can do it. With one word. Water. Flow. River. I want to tell you, the Holy Ghost wants to challenge us today. To pray for the wisdom of God. Let's be a meek Moses in every situation. And let's seek God's direction. And when he speaks explicitly and expressly, let's obey him completely. I'm going to tell you, even with this message... I begin to understand some of the challenges of what I would be preaching today. How I could be misunderstood. But I said, God, I'm not going to wrestle with you. This is the only word I've got. And we're going to give it to your people. Amen. But I'm not going to fight with you, God. Amen. That's what we need, brothers and sisters, is God. I don't care how you want to do it. I may want to wring their neck, but you may want me to hug their neck. And I don't care what I want. I want your will. And I can strike that rock and water can still flow. But I don't want me and you to have problems. And I don't want to be limited in where I can go and what I can be and what I can do for you. I don't want my spirit and my attitude getting out of control and my anger to cause me to not be able to fulfill the dream that you've put in my life. Because hear me, 
If we're not always meek, that doesn't mean we're never assertive. You hear me? That doesn't mean we're never assertive. We've got to have apostolic authority. But can I tell you, apostolic authority and Christ-like meekness are meant to complement and not contradict one another. They both work simultaneously. Because the people are going to the promised land. They're going to get there. God's going to take them there. It's going to happen. But Moses doesn't get to go. God's going to do it. You're not going to keep God from bringing his people where he's going to bring them, but you don't get to bring them there. And people that don't know how to be meek and handle their authority is going to limit how far they can take whoever is under them. I want to be meek with my children. There's been times, there's been times I, I, I watched the situation happen and I got mad at my children. I saw it, I watched it, I looked at it. Man, it made me so angry. I couldn't believe they did what they did. But I took time a little later to kind of just start checking the situation out. And I realized I misjudged it. And if I would have responded in my anger, they would have not respected me because they know the truth. And teenagers have their eyes wide open. And teenagers need authority. But they need meekness too. And if we ever as leaders feel like we've got the right to just do what we want to do when we want to do it because we've got the power, we're in trouble. Just because I can. Can I tell you, when you tell somebody no, you have a right just to say no because I said so. And children ought to obey. You understand? Children, obey your parents. That's the Bible. So I'm not trying to cause trouble here today. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, amen, we need to realize, amen, that just because we said so is a not enough response to make people want to do it. But it will take, take time to teach them some wisdom and give them some understanding they'll want to do. And so it takes time to rule our spirit as leaders and teachers to say, hey, I've got to do some teaching and give some revelation and understanding that will develop the world too. Now hear me, I'm getting close to being done. I can see the end, all right? The Bible said by mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. Mercy... Is God not giving me everything I deserve? It's like God having me in the scope. And he's deer hunting. And he could pull the trigger. And I'd be in trouble. But he lets me live. And he lets me walk. 
so that grace can reach me and teach me. I'm going to tell you there's some people that are wrong and dead wrong. But the Bible said the servant of the Lord must not strive. But be gentle unto all men. If God peradventure would give them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth. And I tell you, if you will keep a right spirit, whatever the right spirit is, in all things, at all times, it's going to create a better atmosphere for those that have the wrong spirit to see their wrong spirit. Because by mercy and truth, that means I could judge you, I could take you out, I could deal with you. But I love you. And I'm looking at the long haul. And I'm going to let mercy do some work. I'm going to preach some truth to you. I'm going to keep reasoning with you. Preaching the word of God to you. Reaching for you. I'm going to tell you there's people in the church that I pastor right now I could make a devil out of if I wanted to. But I'm still digging around their tree. And I'll do whatever God tells me. I'll do whatever. But if mercy is what it calls for, it's what I'll do. Because only by mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. Can I tell you, I'm not interested in just getting rid of the iniquitous person. I'm interested in getting rid of the iniquity out of their heart and keeping and saving the person. And if there's any chance I can do it, I want to do it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. How many wants virtues and balancing virtues in your life? Why don't you stand with me? I, I, I think this is good. This is enough. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I want you to pray with me while I make my final comments for just a little bit. Hallelujah. Let's just pray for a little bit. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. This is the way I'm going to close. <clears throat> David, David was a good man, a lot of character. And he found himself one day very frustrated, very angry. There was a man that had uh, insulted him by the name of uh, Nabal. And Nabal, Nabal was being very unkind to David for the kindness that David showed his men. I'm just going to hurry past through the story, but... I mean, David told his men, he said, all right, if he wants to learn who I am and doesn't have any respect for me, I'll tell you what I'll do. Let's just go, guys. 400 men put on their swords, and the Bible said David put his sword on. And he was headed out to show Nabal who he was. And as he was rushing out to take care of business, there was a woman came hurrying his way, fell before him, and said... Nabal, his name means folly and a fool, and he's just like his name. He's an evil man, but David, you're a good man. You're a good man. You, you, the hand of God's on you, David. You're not going to be running in the wilderness the rest of your life. 
You're not going to be chased like a flea the rest of your life. God is for you. The anointing's on you. You're going to be raised to the kingship. Uh, You're you're going to go where God's going to get you. I know you're having trouble and life's hard right now. And you're getting irritated. can get frustrated right now. But God's got his hand. He's going to take you where he wants you to go. Don't. Don't do, don't do anything right now that you'd regret when you get in that place of power. Don't do anything today that'll haunt you tomorrow. David said, in his own way, I hear you, Lord. You've had to send a woman my way. But I'll take it from a lady because I hear it today. I hear it. I was going to be a fool. While dealing with a fool, I was going to be a fool. I was about to take matters in my own hands. But God sent you and God spared me. And I'll be able to live because I'm listening to wisdom right now without a regret that I would have had. I'd have disobeyed God. I'd have gave in to my humanity. I remember my boy one day playing basketball with another boy. As he was playing basketball, I heard that little friend that was a neighbor. I heard him. He was being dishonest while he was playing ball. He was cheating and he was taking advantage of my boy. And my boy was just playing. It was really in a joking way. But he was being dishonest about the score and all that kind of stuff. I thought, Lord, don't let my boy become like he's dealing with. Don't don't let him become like what he's dealing with. And it struck me. I said, I wonder how many times in my life has the great heavenly father looked over me and said, don't become like what you're dealing with. You're dealing with angry person. Don't become angry dealing with an angry person. You're dealing with a stubborn person, but don't be stubborn yourself. Don't become like what you're dealing with dealing with I'm telling you God's looking over all our life today saying be meek always keep your power in check always keep your word in check always keep rule over your spirit always just because you can and you'll get by with it and water will still flow don't mean it's over with me and you you got always Always be meek. Jesus said, I'm meek and lowly. I'm meek and lowly. Peter, put that sword up. I could call 12 legions of angels right now if I wanted to. John, you don't know what spirit you're of. To be like Jesus. To be like Jesus. A bruised reed he would not break. A smoking flack he would not quench. On earth alone. His voice wouldn't be heard in the streets. To be like him. He wouldn't proclaim himself as the Messiah. He'd send John. All through life's journey 
from earth to glory. Hallelujah. I only ask to be like him. 